0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John are going to discuss Acts chapter 8, which includes Saul ravaging the church, Philip proclaiming Christ, the belief of Simon the Magician, and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Peter Lightheart is going to open this episode talking about our current fundraising campaign and our new Psalter project. If you would like to give to that project, I have a link in the show notes for you that will take you to our Give page where you can help us and support our work. We want to thank you so much for listening and we hope that you are helped and sharpened by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John discussing Acts chapter 8.
1: Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes is in the background helping us stay on track, getting everything recorded and getting it edited and broadcast for you Our audience. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, We're in the middle of our fundraising month. July is our fundraising month this year, mid-year effort at fundraising. And the focus of our efforts has been to raise money for a Psalter project. We have the first edition of a Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter in production. We should see it very soon. And then uh, within a month or so, we hope to have it available to the general public. That'll just be a starter, though. We have about 40 psalms in that collection. But we have a group of translators and musicians and editors who are going to be working over the next several years to complete a full Psalter. Jim Jordan translated most of the psalms, but we have a few that need to be translated. And then we need to make the psalms that Jim translated consistent with each other and, and smooth out the poetry a little bit, point them for chant, and then have musicians compose chant music for each of them. Uh, so that's a big project, and we're trying to raise extra money above and beyond our normal operating expenses. We estimate it'll take us $30,000 to complete that project, which is a lot of money for us, but also uh, we think it's um, both relatively small amount for a big project, and also we, we think it's a really important project. We believe that the psalm singing in the churches is an important part of the church becoming the transformative power that it's called to be. We must preach the gospel, of course. We must must worship. We must gather at the Lord's table. And we must offer a sacrifice of praise. And nothing better to offer as a sacrifice of praise than the Lord's own hymns from the Psalter. Uh, we believe it's a life-changing, a world-changing experience and practice for the church to be singing the Psalms together. And so we're trying to contribute to that with this Psalter. Uh, if you are able, please uh, uh, donate you can find a, a give button on our website, and uh, you can uh, donate that way, or you can send a check to the PO box that's at the bottom of the website. Uh, either way, we hope you can contribute to this Psalter project that we're going to. Uh, that we've already launched, and we hope to keep going and produce a complete Psalter. In our podcast, we're in the middle of a series on the Book of Acts. We've covered the first seven chapters of the book of Acts together, and uh, we're uh, doing the eighth chapter today. We've looked so far at events that are taking place in Jerusalem, but that all changes with the stoning of Stephen. We've mentioned this several times in our previous podcast that the Christians, disciples of Jesus begin to disperse from Jerusalem, not at Pentecost and not at the beginning of the mission, but rather when they begin to be persecuted, when Stephen dies, Uh, Stephen's death is the beginning of the mission, according to Luke's uh, account in Luke and Acts. And so we see here the beginning of that dispersion that goes out from Jerusalem to other parts of uh, the surrounding area and then ultimately to Rome with Paul. Uh, Just a couple things about the the structure of Acts uh, chapter 8 to get us started. One is to note that the, the chapter begins with a character who doesn't play any role in the story of the chapter. It begins with a few verses that describes Saul's persecution of the church in Jerusalem, and he's at the center of the persecution that drives the disciples out of the city and out to the surrounding area. But he drops out of the story uh, at verse 4 of chapter 8 and doesn't reappear until the beginning of chapter 9. So we have kind of an enclosure and an inclusio around chapter 8, with these references to Saul and the references to persecution. And the focus of chapter 8 is not on Saul, but rather on the ministry of Philip, who is mentioned in chapter 6 as one of those who were set apart to serve tables. Like Stephen, he does more than serve tables. He's a, he's a preacher of the Word, and he carries the Word with him. As he is, uh, goes out from Jerusalem, he's one of the disciples who flees from Jerusalem because of the persecution. Uh, and he ends up in Samaria. Uh, and then at the end of the uh, later in the chapter, he ends up speaking to an Ethiopian eunuch. The very end of the chapter, he's taken off to Azotus, which is ancient Philistine Ashdod, and he ends up at Caesarea. One of the interesting things about uh, chapter eight, the, the structure of chapter eight, is the, the geographic movement. We know from the beginning of Acts that Jesus lays out a geographic progression for the gospel. Uh, he tells he tells the twelve that the or the eleven that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Philip uh, begins that process. He goes from Jerusalem and he ministers in Samaria. But interestingly, he doesn't stop there. And uh, he, an angel directs him to go to a road where he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopia is on the edge of the earth. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, he's in Philistia and he's passed on through Philistia uh, to um Caesarea, a name that obviously includes the title Caesar. And so what we have in chapter 8 seems to be a kind of microcosm of the of the progression of the book as a whole. Philip is uh, previewing the whole progress of the book, the whole uh, movement of the book, uh, by going from Jerusalem to Samaria and then on uh, taking the gospel to Ethiopia.
2: Luke seems to give attention to the Samarians within his gospel to a greater degree than um, the other synoptics. He um, has the parable of the Good Samaritan. He has the account of the Samaritan who returns of the ten lepers. And he also mentions the Samaritan village that doesn't receive Christ on his journey down to Jerusalem. The place of Samaria within Luke's theological understanding, it seems to me, arises in part from a connection with the Northern Kingdom in the Old Testament. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, as I read it, he's playing off the background of the story of um, Ahaz and the prophet Oded, And so the place of Samaria within his vision is in part um, designed, I think, to speak of the unification of the divided people of God in preparation for the gospel going to the Gentiles proper.
3: Hmm. That movement, as we've noted is triggered by persecution but we can see it as a real increase in the amount of persecution can't we it's it's being ratcheted up so it begins just with mockery in chapter one then as the apostles preach in public imprisonment comes up in chapters two and four but now in in verse three of this chapter for instance it's it's house to house so private religion if if you like is now coming under threat Um, but this movement is fitting, it seems to me, to take place here. Stephen's message, which we just looked at last week, outlines a theology which really can function in a dispersed world. He's spoken about the lack of need for a temple. He's given the examples of Joseph and Moses, who are men who thrive in exile. And so this seems to fit fit with that theologically.
1: mm Yeah, I've thought um, for a a while that this is the background to a number of New Testament letters. uh, The the word that's used here for scattering is a form of diaspora. Uh, We know that the Jews were dispersed. They were scattered around the Mediterranean because of the exile. And many of them remained dispersed, part of diaspora Judaism, up until the time of Jesus and the time of the book of Acts. But the church is experiencing a diaspora of its own. They're being scattered from Jerusalem. And there are a couple of epistles. Uh, the epistle of James is written to those who are dispersed abroad using the, a form of the same word. Peter writes to those who are part of the dispersion. And those are often taken to be uh, letters that are sent out to the diaspora Jews. Uh, I suspect that instead what's being uh, talked about is the diaspora that begins here, the scattering of the disciples. Uh, and particularly if we, we think that James is written very early, as as Jeff Myers has argued and others, then it's written at a time when there's intense persecution, the people have been displaced, and uh, the instructions that James is giving have a specific application to that circumstance. Just to pick
3: up on that, Peter, the notion of scattering, I think, is a mixed metaphor in, in Scripture. And even in Hebrew, for instance, the same verb can be translated scatter or, or sow. And so we talk about scattering the seed, and in various prophetic books, so Jeremiah, for instance, talks about how God will scatter the people among the nations, and it's um, uh, it, it's negative, I guess, immediately, um, but it, it can have that mixed aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And they are Israelis being sown among the nations, in a sense, and the exile, as
2: we've just thought, did, did bear fruit. So there seems to be some of that going on. Mm-hmm. We've spoken already about the way in which characters can be introduced earlier on in the Luke, it, earlier on in Luke's account in Acts, and then they'll be picked up at a later point. After an introduction as a minor character, they become a major player. And Philip is an example of this. although Saul is introduced here, he comes up in the next chapter. but Philip is someone that we first were introduced to as one of the um, people appointed. Into Jerusalem Church, in response to the situation with the um, the widows who um, were being neglected in the distribution. Here, he plays far more of an active missionary role, which suggests that the purpose served by the um, the people who are appointed at that point goes beyond mere table service. We already saw that in the case of Stephen.
1: Yeah, that, that suggests some, an interesting dynamic between preachers of the Word in general and the Twelve in particular. Philip goes by himself to uh, Samaria, and then the apostles come later. So we have the mission of the church is, is not being centrally directed by the apostles. They're in, in some sense, they're catching up with what the Spirit is doing in Samaria, or what uh, the Word is doing in Samaria. And then they come in order to confer the spirit, but th- you have this uh, this dynamic between the expansion of the church that's uh, sometimes carried on by people who are not part of the uh, the inner core of the leadership of the church, and then uh, the apostles are doing uh, kind of giving a an imperp- imp- impermature to what has uh, happened otherwise. It's always a challenge to know what applies or how how we
4: are to apply these stories to. Ourselves to the church, to church leadership, to programs and mission. There's, it's pretty evident that this is taking place at a transitional time. Uh, Philip is going out in Samaria, and the apostles have to come down and bestow the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Of course, Simon's going to react to that, but just the fact that Peter and John come and pray for them, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. Uh, and they receive the Spirit in some some visible way, is a reminder that um, and this kind of thing happens in the Book of Acts, especially when the mission when the church expands um, into other uh, areas outside of Jerusalem and especially outside of the Jews. Acts ten, uh, Acts fifteen, it's going to be mentioned. Uh, I think it happens in Acts nineteen when Paul goes to Ephesus and meets some disciples of John. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to remember you do have a transitional period here and so we, we can't just we can't just imitate these things but there are things to learn and I think one of them probably Peter is your comment about this is not being centrally planned or planned from the center of, of Jerusalem necessarily it's the spirit driving people out and around uh, to get the work done.
1: yeah and I wonder if there's another dimension to that. Um... Philip, uh, like Stephen, is carrying on a mission that resembles the mission of Jesus. Uh, He's going and he's preaching, proclaiming the Word. He's doing signs. Those who have unclean spirits are delivered from the spirits, and those who are paralyzed and lame are healed. That's verses 6 and 7. And then you have many people baptized because of the preaching. But the gift of the Spirit then comes later. So you have this sequence that looks like, to me, again, Philip is playing an interesting role here. It looks like to me that the the ministry in Samaria is kind of a microcosm of the whole gospel sequence going from the beginning of Jesus ministry with his signs and his preaching to the gift of the spirit and all that's kind of compacted. It's like the Samaritans go through the entire experience of receiving Jesus and receiving the spirit, Jesus in the form of Philip. So th- there may there might be a that might be one aspect of the uh of the oddity of the, the detachment of the preaching of the gospel from the gift of spirit here,
4: yeah, because we look at that and think, well, Philip is preaching the Messiah, verse five. The crowds are paying attention to him; they're listening to him; they're seeing the signs; they're uh, experiencing uh, redemptive healing, and there's a lot of joy in that city. And we look at that and say, well, how can all that be without the Holy Spirit? <laughs> um, and then they're baptized, uh, so presumably they're at least professing faith. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the Spirit comes. And I, this is important to remember that that you're right. There's a, there's a redemptive historical kind of pattern going on here, uh, in imitation of uh, the larger ministry of Jesus and the Spirit, um, and that the giving of the Holy Spirit here is not necessarily the first time the Holy Spirit has been working in these people's hearts, but it is. a a, a visible uh, empirical manifestation for the apostles and for everybody else that the church is going to be an international church. It's going to go beyond just uh, Jerusalem and the Jews.
1: Mm. I think that confirms Alistair's point earlier that what we're talking about is the knitting together of uh, northern and southern kingdoms that were divided. So the spirit is the sign of God's acceptance and approval of the Samaritans, which means that those Uh, the the disciples that are coming from Jerusalem, the Judean disciples, are going to have to also accept the Samaritans as brothers.
3: Yeah, that knitting together strikes me as interesting. I'm I'm grabbed by this um, term in verse 6, the crowds with one accord. That term is is something of a watchword in Acts. I think they pray with one accord at, at the start, they meet with one accord at Pentecost and later in the temple, then in Solomon's porch, it's again with one accord. And uh, I think this is very interesting in light of Acts 2. When we spoke about that, we spoke about it as a, a kind of un of of the world. Um, at Babel, people were gathered together in one place and had one tongue and so forth, but were then scattered. And we're seeing an undoing of that, but Interestingly and, and paradoxically, it's not being done just by regathering everyone to the same place or by giving them a common language. So Samaria had a slightly different dialect, um, I guess, so that's, that's not going on. Rather, there is a scattering taking place. But as that happens, there is this new body forming, which which, which is growing in one accord. It's a very different kind of um, unity, isn't it? So it, it's not... Restoring that same language, um, but it, it's uh, yeah, it's happening in the church. Mm. I should point out that language will be restored one day. We're told in um, Zephaniah 3 that we'll all speak a pure tongue one day, so we will all speak Hebrew. And <laughs> for that reason, I see my present endeavor to learn Hebrew as largely a, an eschatological
1: um, exercise. <laughs> I thought we'd all be speaking King James English. <laughs> <laughs> Simon obviously plays a large role in this story in Samaria. What, what are you thinking his role is in the – how does he fit into the whole sequence in the Philip's mission?
4: One thing, not the only thing, is that there's obviously a juxtaposition of Simon and Philip here. Um, and Simon is introduced almost as a way of uh, telling us how Samaritan culture worked. Uh, this Simon's way of leading was a cultural given. You know, they all paid attention to him. It says in yeah, verse 10, that's just another way of saying uh, this is the way their culture did things. They had a powerful man, a magus, um, and that either means or probably means he does both practices some form of magic. But he's also a wise man. He's the one. Uh, that the cultural leaders listen to. Um, he's the one that, uh, modeled for them how to behave in their culture. And now you have, um, Philip coming in and they're listening to him and they're listening to the gospel and the kingdom of God is, uh, is, uh, beginning in this town in Samaria, in this region and Remember, the kingdom of God is God's new way of organizing humanity under the lordship of Christ. And so things are changing. Um, and yet this man, Simon, uh, doesn't quite get how the kingdom works and so has to be rebuked. But I do think there's this, definitely this juxtaposition of leadership, influence, um, and how God is ordering and organizing humanity now in a new way and not in this pagan way.
2: I wonder whether the juxtaposition is primarily between um, Peter and Simon. Yeah. Um, both of them are, of course, Simon's. And later on in chapter 13, I think we see similar juxtaposition between Elemas, the sorcerer, or Jesus and Paul, um, the way that their experience is described in similar terms. And then Paul is the apt counsellor for Sergius Paulus who's the man that Elemis is associated with. Here, I think, um, we're seeing two figures who represent different types of um, visions of spiritual authority, the first being one of magic and power and the attempt to use spiritual power to build oneself up. This, I think, is something that Paul has to deal with a lot in places like Corinth, the idea of... The gift of the spirit is something that is self-aggrandizing, that people with these greater spiritual gifts are exalted by that fact and they can set themselves up against others. And the whole fact that the spirit is a gift undermines all of that. The spirit can't be bought. The spirit isn't there to build us up as individuals, puff us up, but to um, build other people up as a gift, an expression of love. There's a picture here, isn't there, of the offence
3: of the gospel and the way it shakes up societies, removes power from people. Philip and Simon are described in such similar terms and with exactly the same um, words at, at times. They both work wonders, same terms, they draw crowds, they are heeded by the people there's that term great power applied to both of them and they're they both to amaze or astonish in some translations the people who see them and i think there's a real sense in which philip is, is taking away simon's influence and that's going to cause problems just as it did in jesus's own day in that he, he removed power from the pharisees and the religious authorities and so forth and so i think we're just seeing that same offense of the gospel in in a new New context.
4: You certainly have here a, a lot of uh, application. Uh, this is not really too hard for us to apply to leadership in the church. That fact that ecclesiastical authority and power is seductive, you know, and there's always a temptation to acquire it by illegitimate means, and it's especially a seductive temptation for young, immature, new Christians who. Um, Who can game the system, if you would, and, and get some, uh, respect, some honors, and people look up to you, they listen to you, they follow you, and that's, that's a clear application. Uh, the other one is, you know, just because you're somebody in the world outside of the church doesn't mean you ought to have authority inside of the Christian church. Simon, of course, was great. He was somebody he could draw a crowd. People listened to him, people followed him. And and you know a lot of Christians might think, oh, this is the ideal trophy candidate to entrust with authority in Samaria. Uh, he was one of them, and we could uh, we could make you know we can make a lot of headway in the culture now that he's a Christian. But it doesn't always work that way, uh, and this is this story I think is a great example of that.
1: Yeah, and I think the the specific uh, specific form that this takes is the offer of money for the gift of conferring the Spirit. thats Historically, that's the association with Simon. The, 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 uh, you make your mark on history. You know you make your mark on history. You get a sin named after you. Uh, Simony is the <laughs> sin of trying to purchase a uh, a church office, and it comes from Simon's Ma- Simon Magus. Uh, but it's, it's the corrupting power of money, which I think is just another wrinkle on what you were saying, Jeff. So it's not, you think somebody has influence, they have uh, success outside the church, and therefore they make a good candidate for leadership in the church. Money plays the same role. Somebody is wealthy, they've had a successful business, uh, they can do things, um, they contribute a whole lot to the church, and therefore they're qualified to uh, take leadership in the church. And that's that's just another, uh, that's more specific example of the kind of temptation that you're talking about.
3: Money in these early chapters seems to be a bit of a litmus test for the sincerity of a conversion, doesn't it? There is a right giving of property and so forth at the feet of Peter. Um, initially in Acts 4, there is the sin of Ananias who, who keeps back money in an Achan-like way. And, and here again, the heart of Simon is, is revealed, I guess, with his approach to an attitude to money. I wanted to ask a quick question about Simon. How, how should we see this guy in terms of a conversion, or, or or should we? Is to ask questions about whether he's genuinely saved or not? Is that even to ask the wrong questions, which the narrative doesn't even try to answer?
1: Well, I'll take an initial stab at it at least. Uh, I, I think I think the indications are that Simon is converted. Uh, he's uh, believed. Verse thirteen tells us. Uh, he's amazed by the sign. That could mean a lot of things. But the fact that he believes the message that Philip preaches, it's clear that he is uh, his heart is out of joint. His heart is not consistent with that belief. And Peter says it very severely. He doesn't have any portion in uh, the, the gospel, verse 21. He doesn't have any portion in the kingdom because he's trying to use his money. Uh, I'd take that as a uh, sign of uh, Simon's, maybe if we want to put it in the terms you ask, James. Simon's incomplete conversion; he he needs to repent of that wickedness. He believes the message, but he doesn't see how it affects his attitude toward money or his attitude toward power, which are linked, obviously, for him. I think Simon's answer in verse twenty-four it's a hopeful resolution. Simon asks for prayer from the apostles uh, so that none of the evil that uh, none of the judgment that uh, Peter pronounces, none of the curses that Peter pronounces, come on him. So I, I don't think those are inappropriate questions. I'm not sure those are the the leading things that, that uh, the text is about, but I think uh, Acts is about conversions of people. And so I don't think those are inappropriate questions to ask. And the complications of a conversion, I think, are as part of what we're learning from this passage.
4: Yeah, I think that's right, Peter. The narrative leaves it open-ended. Um, and the same is true in Acts chapter 13 with Elimus. The narrative kind of, doesn't tell us what happened, but if we if we think about the relationship uh, that Peter or the background to Peter, Peter had a strong rebuke. Remember from Jesus when he was uh, when he uh, acted in an immature way and said he was never going to deny him like everybody else was, um, and Peter gives here Simon a really strong rebuke, and Paul does the same thing with, uh, Elimus because Paul himself, uh, had a very similar experience to Elimus, or he was, uh, he was an Elimus like Magus, um, who went through a, a similar kind of judgment. So, I mean, I think that the, uh, the correlation between Peter and Simon and Paul and Elimus give us some hope that it's likely that they, even though they fall out of the leadership of the church, which they rightly should, doesn't necessarily, they they uh, departed from the body of Christ. Um, because there's nothing here to suggest that Simon didn't heed the strong medicine that was dished
2: out mm. to him by Peter. Mm-hmm. One thing we do see here, I think, is the real danger of a holdover from pagan forms of religion and the way that those can take root within Christian faith Um, this is something that Alexander Schmemann has helpfully written about in the context of the liturgical practices of the early church the way that mysteriological piety as he calls it started to frame the practice of the church and its understanding of the liturgy and so even though they were doing the practices of the Christian liturgy they were doing so in a way that was infected by the assumptions and the expectations and the structures and the instincts of a pagan religion. And although Simon seems to believe this is genuinely the Holy Spirit, this is something that is associated with the um, testimony to the Messiah, he may believe all of that, but he's got these holdovers from pagan religion that remain unaddressed in his thinking.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, that uh, there's a, and, and I think that uh, the Peter's rebuke Focuses our the attend our attention on the, the source of those errors and and sins. It's it's the evil intention, of the heart, wickedness within the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Uh, that's it's a it's a call for uh, what's ne- ne- needed is a repentance of those uh, of those falsehoods and sins. We should move on to the to the next episode. Um, so, uh, Philip is ministered in Samaria. Uh, And then an angel directs him to go south to a road uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza. Um, And I think that one of the things I want to, that that highlights is the way that we we said that uh, the mission of the church is not being centrally directed by the apostles. They didn't create the persecution that scatters people to Samaria, scatters Philip to Samaria. Um, They aren't the ones who are preaching the gospel in Samaria. They come after people have already converted now, Philip is going to go to meet this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's directed by an angel. The, the apostles from Jerusalem are not directing everything, but somebody is. Jesus is still in charge. Uh, Jesus is the one who's uh, the lord of the mission of his church, lord of his church, and he's the master of the mission. Uh, and he sends angels. Later on, he's going to send a spirit to whisk Philip away to another place after he baptizes the eunuch. Uh, and we see that repeatedly, even when it looks like nobody's in charge. Or sometimes it looks like the the vicious, the persecutors are the ones who are in charge of uh, what the church is doing, and the church is ju- just reacting to their persecutors. Uh, but behind that is Jesus conducting and orchestrating the mission uh, through his spirit, by his angels, by uh, sending, you know, by, in the next chapter, directly uh, confronting Saul on the road to Damascus. Uh, Jesus is the one who's in charge of his mission. There's also a feature
2: of um, Luke, a narrative here. Luke has a number of different accounts of journeys. Um, we see an example of this in the road to Emmaus. There's the story here. There's also the story of the next chapter of Saul on the road to Damascus. And each one of these has a movement that involves an encounter with Christ of some type, whether within the text, whether by vision, whether by the accompanying person on the road, and then ends up at some liturgical or um, sacramental event in the celebration of the supper at Emmaus, in the celebration of baptism in this story and in the one that follows. And it seems that Luke is presenting these almost as paradigmatic for Christian understanding. This is the way in which we arrive at an encounter with Christ. There's a movement through... um, There's an itinerary, as it were, where we're led into an understanding of Christ, and that leads us into um, this sacramental union with or um, fellowship with Christ at the end.
3: I think that's a great point. The connections with Emmaus are quite strong here. There is a traveller on a road, and Philip opens the conversation um, with him with a question and asks him what he's already reading, just as Jesus asks the travellers what they've already been discussing. And then the phrases Philip uses are quite similar. He explains the scriptures beginning from that passage in Isaiah, just as Jesus begins with Moses and the prophets and uh, and and so forth. And they speak about Jesus' death. And then there is an invitation. Um, he invites Philip into his chariot, just as um, they invite Jesus to stay with them. But then there is the, the disappearance. And so it, it all seems very, very Christ-shaped, just as Stephen has preached as Christ preached and then died as he died. Now Philip is picking up the, some of the post-resurrection um, appearances of, of the Lord Jesus in terms of his, um, the shape of his ministry. Mm-hmm.
4: I think we should uh, notice here too that there is a, a interesting contrast with Simon in the previous story. Here this Ethiopian eunuch is someone great and someone who has charge of uh, his queen's treasure. So here is um, a faithful, surely an, a believer in the Old Testament sense of the word, mm-hmm. if we want to put it that way. He's a he's a proselyte. He's probably a Jew, probably a circumcised Jew coming to worship. And yet he has, he's faithful and he's in charge of this, uh, this treasury, um, which um, which, again, is just a contrast with Simon.
1: What's your thinking, Jeff, to think that his is, he's a circumcised Jew rather than a Gentile God-fearer?
4: Uh, it could be either. I, I mean, he's coming up to worship uh, at Jerusalem. So what is this, probably the Day of Atonement or one of the other feasts? We have proselytes worshiping at those feasts, but um, I'm just wondering. I mean, he's got, mm-hmm. he's got a copy of the Scripture. Mm-hmm. He's reading Isaiah I don't know. I just, I'm just, that's just a speculation. On yeah. My part.
1: Yeah. But it would be consistent with what uh, we find from other, uh, in the Old Testament, with uh, Jews in prominent places in the Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. And we find Jews in prominent places elsewhere in Acts. So that's interesting. I'd always just assume that we're talking about a, well, he's, he's more than circumcised. Uh, we should note that. He is a eunuch. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well,
4: that (laughs) that doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't have something to circumcise. By the way,
1: (laughs) yeah. I mean, other uh, Um, other Jews have been other Jews have been made eunuchs too. Right.
4: Yeah. Right. Um, But also, you have this theme again with uh, Philip and Peter becoming the wise men to guide and lead the culture of Samaria, the the Magi. Compared with Simon the magician, who's the false Magus, and now we have this man who apparently is uh, a, a a trusted counselor to the queen and tr- entrusted with her treasure, um, who is a who's a godly man and one who's committed to at least understanding the scriptures.
1: Mm.
2: He inquires about the um, meaning of this text from. Isaiah chapter 53, and it seems to me that it might have had a particular resonance for him, Um, the description of someone who is cut off, who does not have a generation. Um, That's very much the experience of a eunuch, and just a few chapters later we have a text concerning the eunuch who would be included within the people of God. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's in um, Isaiah chapter 56 verses 3 to 5. And for the Ethiopian eunuch, this experience of the servant would be something that maybe speaks in a very powerful way to his own experience relative to Israel. Mm -hmm. And maybe he's looking forward to the fulfillment of that particular promise, which in Christ is fulfilled.
1: And that prophecy of Isaiah, of course, is reversing the regulations of the law, uh, Deuteronomy prohibits eunuchs from entering into the assembly of the Lord. And this eunuch is, uh, what Isaiah prophesies that eunuchs will will be accepted and will themselves become fruitful. And this eunuch is, uh, is a fulfillment of that. Highlights the difference between the old and the new covenant assembly. As they're traveling along, uh, of course, the uh, eunuch uh, believes what uh, Philip has been saying and confesses it. And then uh, sees water and wants to be baptized. We're told at the beginning of the story, verse twenty-six, that this is a desert road where Philip meets him, and now we have water in the wilderness, and we have, uh, I think, a uh, an Exodus illusion. It's a it's a baptism, but it's the eunuch passing through the waters and into the new covenant, where he again is going to be fully accepted, though a eunuch, fully accepted among the people of God.
4: There's so much, so much cool stuff in this. Uh, passage, Philip here is behaving like a true Israelite. He's a priest to the nations. The Spirit leads him to the eunuch. Um, And why doesn't the Spirit just help the eunuch understand what he's reading apart from Philip? Because the Spirit works through people normally and brings Philip there to him. and. Hears him reading out loud and we're reminded that just about everybody in the ancient world always read out loud. And Philip asks him if he's understanding what he's reading. And the man says, how can I unless someone guides me? And this is something that the American individualistic kind of Protestant church needs to hear is... um, that's one of my pet peeves about modern American conservative Christianity is it's privatized. We don't need help. We don't need commentaries. We don't need a teacher. And yet we do. We all do. And Philip comes alongside as a priest and helps him understand what the scriptures are saying and who they apply to, of course, Jesus. And the other cool thing about this is uh, Philip understands and should help us to appreciate the fact that all these scriptures are about Jesus. Uh, this, is, this is something that happens all through the New Testament. We find out that so much of the Old Testament is about the Messiah, about Jesus. And the apostles, Philip, uh, as a deacon or whatever he is, has no problem in directing him immediately to Jesus from these scriptures. Uh, that's also a fascinating Point on how to use the Bible when talking to people. He doesn't feel like he needs to go through the all the historical account, the historical background and, and all that first. He just, he just jumps and says, this is about Jesus.
2: If we are to see Exodus parallels here, there is an amusing reversal in that it's the Israelite prophet pursuing the chariot to the water mm. and then the person getting out of the chariot and being baptised. Um, there is some sort of reversal going on there.
1: Yeah, it's like like Pharaoh had decided to uh, jump off his chariot and, and join Israel as they were going out of Egypt.
3: <laughs> yeah, I wondered about that more broadly in the chapter. In Acts 7, uh, Stephen has spoken about Joseph, as in um, the son of Jacob, and then it begins with this great mourning, this lament, which is very much um, in terms of its vocab, like the Genesis 50, Um, lament after Joseph dies. But then we have the growth, um, uh, the multiplication of the church, and the signs and wonders performed. And there may be an exodus pattern behind a lot of this narrative, I think.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.